Hey, welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, Chief Creative Officer at Momentum. My guest today is a living legend and one of the most influential figures our industry will ever know. Sir John Haggerty is the founder, worldwide creative director of BBH. John started his career in advertising as a junior art director in London in 1965. By the late 60s, he was a founding partner of Saatchi & Saatchi. In 1973, he would co-found TBWA London. It was in 1982 that John joined forces with partners John Bartle and Nigel Bogle to found BBH, which quickly became one of the most dominant advertising agencies of the three plus decades to follow. With seven international offices and claims to every major award and accolade imaginable, including the distinction of being named the first ever Agency of the Year at Cannes in 1993 and again in 94. Throughout his career, John led paradigm-shifting campaigns for clients like Levi's, Audi, Lynx, and Johnny Walker. Among his many legacies, he helped pioneer the importance of music and commercials, with BBH helping to propel nine number one hits over the years. In 1994, he was awarded the DNAD President's Award for Outstanding Achievement. In 2005, the International Clio Awards gave John their Lifetime Achievement Award. That same year, he was inducted into the One Club Hall of Fame, In 2008, he was inducted into the Art Directors Club Hall of Fame. And in 2011, he was the first ever recipient of the Lion of St. Mark Award at Cannes for Lifetime Achievement. And of course, the ultimate career mic drop. In 2007, John received a knighthood for services to advertising. Today, he leads the Garage Soho, an investment firm and consultancy for early stage consumer brands. This is the mythic Sir John Haggerty and I talking to ourselves. Let me begin with a meandering question, if I will. They won't all be this way. My brother, Amir, who you know, was the middle brother of three boys. And as a kid, he was a bit of a misfit. You might have called him the black sheep of our family. And so perhaps it was only fate that he would start his career at BBH, whose logo is famously the black sheep. Indeed. And your company gave him a chance and taught him the ropes and really set him up for success his success at BBH attracted me to the business. You therefore had an impact on not just one, but nearly a generation of Farhang men. So (laughs) given that fact, first question, may I call you John? You, of course, please do. Please do, it would be my pleasure, yeah. And we start every interview in the same spot, which is, John Haggerty, where are you from and what did your parents do? Well, I was born in London. um, my parents were of um, uh, Irish um, descent. They m- met here in London, um, both very different in their own ways. My father came from a farming background and my mother, my grandfather, on her, her father was in the military. He was a, an army man, so she was partly brought up in India. Um, but they met here in London, and uh, it was a, a, a you know a very good working class background. Um, but I, I always sort of said what was interesting for me was because you know I had this this Irish um, background. I, I kind of lived in a number of worlds. So I lived in a you know a home. It had a very kind of Irish kind of sense of humor about it and the way things were and that. And then I'd be out with my friends and that would be a very London background. And, and so therefore you became very good as an observer 
And I think that creative people, which I ended up obviously pursuing a creative profession, I think, because we're all creative, actually, but I followed a creative profession. That sense of one being an outsider was always interesting, but also being an observer was something that I think gave my creativity an extra edge. And I think, I'm not talking about me, but you look at so many great creative people who were kind of outsiders. They, they, they came from outside and looked in. And that sense of observing, I think it's a, is, is really important in a creative profession. Being outside, being not, not so much uncomfortable with something, but being able to kind of observe it from a different perspective gets you to an interesting place when you're thinking about your work and thinking about an attitude. So that for me was, I was very lucky in that sense. Once you became the quintessential insider, did you find yourself trying to bottle whatever that magic that, that main, to be able to manufacture being an outsider, even when you no longer were one? I don't know that I ever became an insider or I ever wanted to be an insider. I mean, I, I always sensed myself as being outside the norm. I mean, people would say to me things like, oh, what football team do you support, John? You go, I don't. Um, oh, oh, I see. Right you know, uh, John, you know, will you, will you um, come to, we're all going to the pub. Will you come? No, oh, I don't like pubs. They're bloody awful places. Horrible. So I, not that I was kind of antisocial or anything like that, but I, I sort of quite liked holding on to that, not always conforming to the way people thought you should be or thought you should be. So I, I've tried to hold on to that a little bit. As I say, I think, I think creative people are observers. They observe, and the more you observe, the more you see, the more you, you, you can engage with the world around you in lots of different ways, the better, I think, uh, your work becomes. So very important. What did 14-year-old John Haggerty aspire to be when he grew up? Well, believe it or not, I mean, I'm going to say, say you know, to, to make money, I used to go caddying, you know, without a golf course very near where I, I grew up in North London. And uh, so I'd go caddying. And of course, I, I rapidly worked out at about the age of 10, this was, that, that I'd started caddying because it was wonderful. You could make money and a safe place to be. That actually, if you could play the game, then you could earn more money by giving you know, people you were caddying for tips. So I literally, from about the age of 10, Till I was 15, I lived literally on a golf course. Every possible spare moment I had, I'd be up there. Because as I say, you could earn money there. It was a safe place to be. I had friends there. You could play a game and all that sort of thing. So at the age of 14, I, I thought I might become a professional golfer. But then, you know, I had this sort of, um, this moment when I, I got to about, you know, 14 and a half. And I looked around me and I, I suddenly realized the women on golf courses weren't really very attractive. And uh, I thought, I've got to have a career change here. This is just not going to work. And that's where, again, I was, I was very lucky. <clears throat> here in, in the UK, you could go to, at the age of 14, you could go to art school on a Saturday morning and begin to kind of... And so I, I went to uh, an art school here in uh, Hornsey in, in London. Uh, on Saturday mornings and that first of all the women were much more interesting and uh, secondly it really opened my eyes to kind of you know I had I always liked the sense of creativity but 
it, it really began to develop my, my senses in those terms. And it was a wonderful way of being introduced to art and drawing and people who thought differently, who came from different backgrounds, who, you know, nobody cared where you came from. They only cared where you were going to. And I always loved that about creative environments, brilliant environments to be in, which is the more we can promote creativity, the more we can expose people to creativity, the better the world will be. And certainly I found that. So at the age of 14 and a half, I went to art school and realised that, yes, this is my calling, this is what I'm going to do. So the golf clubs were put away. <laughs> and uh, I hardly ever went back to them. And uh, I followed a career in creativity. And you entered the industry in the mid-60s. Yeah. How might a creative director describe a young John in those days? Um, uh, I was opinionated. I was gobby. I was um, full of myself, certain of what I, uh, I, I knew, um, and didn't mind telling anybody if they asked. Uh, and that's probably why I got fired from my first job. <laughs> but it was... It was, a, you know, it was a fabulous time to emerge because, in a way, I, I, I'm very lucky. I was born 1944. I was literally what they, baby boomers and coming out of that Second World War, we, we came into a world that was changing, <clears throat> the birth of the teenager, you know, eventually there was more money and more opportunity and we were really were a generation that was changing the way life was. And, and it's hard for people to maybe young people to understand that quite now. Of course, youth is crucially and fundamentally important to kind of reshaping things. But we were reshaping so much. I mean, we were the first generation in a way that didn't want to look like our dad. You know, if you think about it, previous generations to that, kind of you know you you aspire to sort of look like your dad you know you put on a suit you put you know some sort of oil in your hair and you combed it and you didn't and you shaved and that and we were the first ones to come along and actually let our hair grow wear jeans put, you know and, and have a completely different attitude listen to music that was totally different I mean, you know, one forgets the impact of rock and roll. One forgets the impact that it had on society. And it was everything and it changed everything. So emerging into the communications industry in the mid-60s, you really sensed that you were part of this huge change. You had a different point of view about it. You, you believed it had an integrity if it expressed itself in the right way. Um, and it was very, very exciting. So, you know, when we were talking to people who'd been in the business for 20 years, you, you kind of thought you, you were talking to somebody who just doesn't understand where it's going. Um, whereas, you know, certainly in the UK, <clears throat> you know, the people we looked to were coming out of New York. They were the Bill Birnbergs, the George Lewis, the Mary Wells, and people like that. And we didn't think much of David Ogilvy, by the way. We thought he was pretty useless. Um, but, you know, he was, you know, some people loved him. But we were looking to those people, and, and especially, I think, Birnbach, who, who, who really, in a way, kind of articulated a philosophy for modern advertising. And we're still living with that, really. You know, and I've always said, 
there are only there've only been two great in my view there have only been two great agencies in the world and one of them is Dordain Birnbach um, because of what Birnbach did and how he articulated a way of advertising and the other is a, an agency here in the UK called Colin Dickinson Pierce because they took creativity to the masses and they made a huge change which is a theme I would I could articulate a little bit more on but so you know we were looking to America for those in that inspiration it was a very exciting time whereas a lot of the old school here in the UK hadn't done that and we realized there was change so coming sorry long answer to a very short question we were coming into a change world and we were changing it and it was incredibly exciting yeah, you were entering an industry that was being shaped by Bill Bernbach, David Ogilvy, Leo Burnett, Colin Millward. And so, yeah, I was wondering, like, as you were building your career and your reputation in, in the late 60s and early 70s, were these men you aspired to be like, or were you conscious of the fact that you wanted to represent uh, sort of a rebellion to this establishment? Well, certainly you had that sense of a rebellion. Uh, and, and I've always thought, you know, people have always said to me, so what drives your ideas? What drives your creativity? And, and I think everybody has to answer this question. What is it you believe in? What is it you're trying to do? And, and I've always looked at irreverence as a driving force in my creativity. And in a sense, that coming into you know, the industry at that time in the, in the sort of mid-60s and the early 70s, you, you looked at what was going on around you in fashion, in films, in music, um, in, in painting. You know, there was a kind of massive irreverence going on, breaking borders down, changing the way people felt and thought. And, and so it was those things that were driving us. And in, within me, it was this sense of irreverence. I loved it. I loved what it did to ideas. I loved what it did to thinking. I loved what it did to kind of uh, uh, organizations, how it drove them, how it changed them. I know you've been asked to rehash your origin story hundreds of times. Are, are you a person who generally enjoys reflecting back on your career when people like me aren't forcing you to? And, <laughs> and actually during self-quarantine, have you found yourself, now that you've spent more time at home, have you found yourself reflecting more these past couple months? Well, I, I don't mind um, talking about what we did. Only, you know, I had a great history teacher and he, he came, wonderful man. He came into our class. And he, he, funny enough, he, he died two months ago and I used to see him um, every year. We used to meet up for a lovely dinner. And uh, he walked into our class and he said, I'm here to teach you history. History isn't about the past, it's about the future. And we kind of went, oh my God, this, this man thinks kind of in a different, you know, I was, I think, 11 or 12. And, and you kind of, wow, this guy's saying something very different. So when you ask me to look back, I'm, I'm in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm looking back to look forward. So I don't mind looking back. I'm not like those people who say, oh God, you know, I'm not doing that again. But, because there are interesting things that are still relevant. So I don't mind that at all. But have I reflected on things? Well, I've, I've I've been thinking a lot about, and I do presentations on this, about what the business needs to do now, what we need to focus on now. And I've been doing this now for about six months, but it in, you know, my, my, my sort of thinking around this is intensified because I'm do, still doing lots of things. I'm, 
I'm running this thing called the Garage in Soho, and it's about getting businesses up off the ground. And um, so, you know, we look at businesses and help them and guide them and try and get them to understand the brand is very important. So, you know, your experiences from the past become very relevant. But I keep saying to people, you know, you know, principles remain, practices change. And that's my constant theme about life. You know, principles fundamentally remain the same. Obviously, practices do change. And I think um, that's the most important thing to always remember. And I don't, you know, I, 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 I love, you know, enjoying um, the work because I think it has a, a lot of the work we did had a sort of philosophical basis to it. So you can always enjoy it. It's, it's not, you know, I think sometimes in some industries it must be difficult, you know, so often in fashion, if you're looking at something and you go, well, why did I do that? Well, because everybody else was doing it. You know, it's kind of like, why did I make my jackets pink? Well, everybody else, they wanted pink, so I did it. And I did a better pink jacket than they did. It's on trend. Yeah, it was on trend. And that. Well, if we never did that, we thought, what's a great idea? And I think, you know, the brilliance and genius of advertising is that because it's founded on ideas, because it's driven by ideas, the ideas don't really go out of fashion. The way you express them obviously does. But so there, there's always a core to it that appeals. You know, it's like, you know, when somebody says, name your 10 great movies, you know, and I always put in one flew over the cuckoo's nest because it's a profound movie. It's a story about an individual fighting against the system. And, and, it, and it has within it all kinds of messages for you. Yes, it can be a bit dated in certain things, but, but you can still enjoy that. And that's because it's, it's centered around a strong idea. And that's so important. That's what advertising has got. And that's what I love about it. Yeah. As we talk about the journey of a career and the journey of a life, you know, I'm about to turn 40. And sometimes I wonder. Young, good God, are you sure you, sure you should be doing this? Well, but here's the thing. Sometimes I wonder what it would be like to hang out with my 20-year-old self. Even if I'm young, that 20-year-old, he feels a long way away from me. And I, 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 I wonder how much of my current self I would recognize in that guy. Would you recognize a lot of pieces of your current self in 1965, John entering the industry, or does that guy feel like something of a stranger? It's a very, I mean, that's a very interesting question, actually. I, I, I do actually think that I've got better. You know, I, I, I think one of the great problems in creative careers is that you, and, I, and I've talked a lot about this, that you have a 10-year period when you do your great work, which is a problem in our industry because it's an industry where you have to come in every day and have a new idea. That idea can't be like yesterday's idea. But if you're, say, a painter, you, you know, you, 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 can, you can come in, you can have an idea and you can keep pursuing that idea. You can keep doing it. Um, or, you know, you're a filmmaker and you're Spielberg and you kind of make the same movies you go on doing it or you're a musician you know you're Mick Jagger you can go around the world sinking jumping Jack Flash and you know 20,000 people turn up but you wrote that in 1968 so I, 
Whereas I think in our industry, you have to constantly refresh, 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 because you can't have yesterday's idea. But I, I do think personally, and this is my view, other people might disagree. I think I've got better over the last 20 years. And, and um, I think maybe my 10 years is about to emerge. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. That's, that's my slightly stupid. But I, do you know what I find? I find I can get to it much, much faster. Much faster. And I, I think because I've been doing it for so long, I've got this sort of um, knowledge of all the things that I did and, you know, that worked, that didn't work and how I got there and, 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 and valuing those things that did work understanding why they worked gets you to things faster and faster. And I think I, I've got better. And, you know, I'm an art director. I'm not a writer. But actually, I think I'm writing now much more than I could write when I was, you know, 25. Um, whereas now I write quite a lot. Even though I still view myself as an art director, I still, I still write much more than I did back then. So... In a funny way, I think I've got better today. So when I look back at myself in, uh, you know, in the mid-60s, and uh, I'd look at my, and I'd go, oh, my God, how can I be saying that? You know, it was very funny. I was, I was recently, he very sadly died, Tim Bell, who was always described as the ampersand in Saatchi and Saatchi because he kept them apart. And he just died very recently. And Tim and I were at a, an award show. It was about eight years ago now, and we were, we were judges on the award show. And we were just laughing about, you know, our time together. And we were looking people up getting awards. We both turned to each other about the same time and said, God, you know, we used to get awards for that shit that we used to do. And, <laughs> and it was completely naive stuff that was being awarded. And we thought we used to get awarded for that. So I think that sense of wisdom has got into my work that perhaps wasn't there in the mid 60s there was tremendous enthusiasm tremendous irreverence but i think i've injected into it a sense of wisdom which gets me to things faster you just said you had to keep the sachi brothers apart you were a founding yeah uh you were a, a co-founder of, of sachi and sachi and yeah 1970 yeah did the brothers not get along well oh god they were they were like chalk and cheese i mean they were brothers in the end so in the end they were family you know that was it but Tim, as I say, was always described as the ampersand because, you know, he was the sort of the emollient one that would keep them apart and, you know, balance one against another. They were both brilliant in their own ways and, and fantastic. They were totally yin and yang. And sometimes when they rubbed up against each other, that became quite explosive, especially with Charlie who was the writer, the creative one. And, and Charlie was a brilliant, brilliant writer, let me tell you. I mean, he was absolutely fantastic. But, he, you know, he had a very abrasive uh, point of view, although he was a tremendous guy to work with because he brought the best out of people. You know, he made you feel you could be better than you were. And what, with all his faults, and he, let me tell you, he had lots of them, that one characteristic for me overrode all the thoughts. He really made people feel they were being better than they possibly could be. And I've always taken that with me. Uh, in, in hoping, hopefully I've taken that with me when I'm in other environments. 
making people feel they can be better than they really are at the moment. And I think that's a tremendously liberating thing to do. So yeah, it was a tremendous time. And again, it was, you know, it was explosive. I mean, it was, London was kind of a fabulous place to be. You know, I'd love to have been in New York in the 60s, but certainly I thought London in the 70s, where it was all beginning to, uh, to, to develop. It was funny, actually, because I talked about two agencies. There was um, Collie Dickinson Pierce and, uh, and uh, Saatchi and Saatchi. And at that time, um, Collie Dickinson Pierce were, were, were kind of like the Beatles. Um, but we were like the Rolling Stones. We were, you know, brasher, <clears throat> probably consumed more drugs. Not that I did, of course, but, you know. Um, but there was that sort of almost, you know, unruly, challenging, um, flying by the seat of our pants. But it was, it was a very exciting time. Brilliant place to be. You founded BBH in 1982. Yeah. If you would, just paint a picture of some of the events leading up to that decision and a little bit of your state of mind as you set out to start your own company with your own name on the door. Well, we were, we, I left Sarches in 73. I helped set up the um, London office of TBWA and I thought TBWA was a very interesting concept. Um, I met Bill Tracos, obviously, and, and his partners, Uli Bisendanger. Uh, and Paolo Roldi and Claude Bonange. And I thought very interesting what they were trying to do. Um, they were very much ahead of their time in it being a sort of uh, a structure uh, that was a European agent, a global agency, as opposed to American a global agency. Most global agencies were American. This was trying to be a European one. And um, so we joined them, and that's where I met John Bartle and Nigel Bogle, and we rapidly, although there were five partners, John, Nigel, and myself soon became the kind of management, the core management team that were driving the agency forward. And, you know, with, with quite a lot of difficulty to start with, um, we managed to establish the agency here in London. It, it was quite difficult for all kinds of reasons, which I, I won't go into now because we don't have time. But eventually we turned it into a big success. It became um, Campaign Magazine, our magazine, our like ad age. It became their first agency of the year in 1980. And um, the ownership structure, which was complicated, was one which didn't necessarily give you the rewards for your success that you deserved. And we were sort of talking to this about the founders, TBWNA, and said, look, you know, we really think the structure of the company isn't fair in the sense of it's rewarding people. Can we think, rethink it? In the end, they refused to do so, which was their right, you know, their right to do that. And we eventually said, well, if that's the case, then we're going. We didn't want to leave, actually. We, we wanted to make it work. And so in 1982, we decided to leave and set our own agency up. We didn't take any business. We, we thought that would not be the right thing to do. Much as though they thought we were going to strip the agency of all their clients, we didn't. We didn't want to do that. We didn't want to take the way their agency was, which is ultimately their agency, and turn it into ours. We wanted to start with a a sort of blank sheet of paper and build our own agency. And so it really came out of a desire to gut, to have a fairness in in how we were rewarded um, that recognised. Uh, and to kind of do the work that we felt we wanted to do. 
So it was those, those, those two things. I mean, to be honest with you, I thought to myself, because, you know, I'd helped set Sachi and Sachi up, I'd helped set TVWA up, I thought, oh, no, not again, oh, my God. Which you kind of go backwards to go forwards. But we did it, and, and we were obviously right to do it. So that was the kind of logic behind it. Yeah, and to set up these huge agency requires more than creativity alone. It requires tremendous business acumen and the ability to navigate politics. And one thing I love about this business for creative people is I sort of view it as a spectrum. To the far left is the business person and to the far right is the artist. And you can be successful all along that spectrum. I don't think you can be, to be a great creative, you can't be 100% business person and 0% artist. And you can't be 100% artist and 0% business person. But 80-20 or 20-80 or 60-40 or 50-50, I've seen various successful versions all along that spectrum. Where are you on that spectrum of, you know, between business person and artist? Well, no, I, th- I do, again, I, I think that is a wonderful thing about the industry. And I, you, you articulated brilliantly there. I mean, that's exactly what I love about it. It's this combination of talents. But in many ways, I, I think lots of creative industries are a bit like that. But I was very much on, obviously, on the creative side, and where I was lucky was having two partners in John Bartle and Nigel Bogle who balanced out completely my total inability in certain areas. Like John was a brilliant strategic thinker. Nigel was a fabulous account man. And I think this kind of combination of talents that you put together in an agency makes for a very, very exciting structure. And, and you know, you can... You can liken it to a band, can't you, where you have a lead singer, you have a a drummer who keeps the rhythm going, you have a bass guitarist who who gives it an an underscoring of kind of power and energy. And and an agency is a bit like that in the sense of, yes, you have someone who is predominantly business but understands the needs for the creativity. You have a strategic thinker who puts you in the right place. And it's that, I've, I've always found that, very exciting that sense of combination of talents and you look at it in other areas I mean you look at it in you know in fashion um you look at Yves Saint Laurent and his partner Pierre Berger I think it was Pierre Berger who was his business partner who understood him who understood what he was about and created an environment in which he could do his work um you look at in in the in the world of music you look at a great manager of a band who understands how to liberate the talents of, of the musicians that they're representing. Representing, You know, there's a, a wonderful book, and I think anybody in advertising should read it. It's by a man called Andrew Lug Oldham, and he was the Rolling Stones' first manager. He was 19 at the time. And he talks about how he helped them and guided them and how he did the things that they weren't very good at. And he was the guy who sort of <clears throat> supposedly locked them in an apartment and said, you know, you can't go on re-recording old R&B songs. You've got to write your own stuff. And, uh, and he, he got them to do that. And, of course, you know, the rest is history. So I think that, that sense of, uh, a, a, of a combination of talents is very important. But the other thing to remember... And I think this is very important. And this is where subtlety comes into it. 
ultimately it's a creative industry <clears throat> and so therefore creative people have got to be in some way or another at the top of it right. and if they're not then it fails and i could talk about now how the industry has kind of found itself driven by big holding companies it's driven by business it's not driven by creative people and i think that's a great shame at the top i made mention of the black sheep logo uh I, I love this logo so much fundamentally because it's not trying to do the thing that most agency branding is trying to do, which is just appeal to the absolute broadest possible swath of clients. And maybe that plays into the sort of holding company mentality you just mentioned. For those who don't know, can you just tell us what is the origin of the Black Sheep logo? Well, of course, the Black Sheep is, is it, it, it's the one who goes against everybody else in a sense. And uh, in mythology and in, I think it comes out of the Bible, actually, <clears throat> the black sheep of the family who went out and came back. But the, the history of the black sheep, <coughs> sorry, my first go, came out of the very, very first piece of creative work we did for Levi's, which was the very first piece of, um, um, uh, not, it was the third account we won. Audi was the first account. But the very first piece of creative work we did for them is they were launching black denim and uh, they booked all these posters. And uh, they said to us, oh, look, you know, we've appointed you now, you've won the business. We've got to have this poster up very soon, and, you know, for Black Denim, we're launching it, can you do something? And so I sort of came back with this idea of <clears throat> all these sheep going in one direction and a black sheep going in the other direction. And Barbara Noakes, who I was working with, I, I just wanted to have it just Black Denim, Black Levi's. Leave it like that. But Bravo went, no, I think we should add the line when the world zigs, you zag. So, and this was a poster we did. Anyway, so the story is, so we present this to Levi's. They've gone, oh my God, we've hired this new agency. They've come up with their first idea. They don't, don't even show a pair of jeans. What have they done? They're, they're, they're lunatics, kind of. And, and they were really worried and they thought that people won't get it. They won't understand it. <clears throat> and then we said, no, they will. Don't worry about it. They'll get it, you know. Anyway, because time was running out, they went with it. And uh, the poster went up and it got a tremendous response. And then um, uh, Robert Strauss, who is the great, great grandson of Levi Strauss, saw the poster uh, in San Francisco. It didn't run, it ran in London. He saw it and he had it framed and put in his office. And he said, this is what this company should be about. And because of that, because we were, you know, we didn't back down, we pushed Levi's to run it in London here. They gave me a black sheep. Um, not a real one, obviously, I kind of, you know, and it sat in my office. And so that was where the black sheep came from. But the point about this is, and it has lots of strains to it, this story. So that was 1982. 1995, we're moving into these new offices in, in um, Soho and I've gone to the architect say, look, I want to put our name outside, big flag with our name outside. And he said, look, John, I'm very, very sorry, but planning permission, you can't put your name outside. It's just one of those crazy things, but you can put your logo. And Nigel, I always remember it, Nigel and I were in the meeting. It was late in the evening. It was like six o'clock. And we both we said, we don't have a logo. We're, we're, we're an advertising agency. We don't have logos. <laughs> Our clients have logos. And this, this design, this architect, looked at us in a very perplexed way. And went, oh, I see. 
And, and the meeting ended, and Nigel and I walked out, and I can remember it now. And we were walking down the stairs, and we suddenly stopped and looked at each other and said, wait a minute, we do have a logo. It's the black sheep. We keep talking about it, but we've never actually officially had it. And we said, that's our logo. And so they put a black sheep outside the office. That's how it came about. So what's nice about that story, what's interesting about that story, apart from the kind of the way it occurred, is that who you are comes out from what you do. We didn't sit down and go, oh, let's have a logo for an advertising agency. It came out of a piece of work we did. And I think that says so much about you as a creative person. It, you are what you do. Look to what you do for how you are. Your work defines you. If you let it be a part of you, if you, if you express your ideas. So that's how it came about. It came out of a piece of work done in 1982 that eventually, somewhat, and my maths isn't very good, 13, 12 years later, became our logo outside our office in, uh, in uh, Kingley Street in Soho, and then we put it on our notepaper. I know you've been asked to tell that story many times, but there's no way I was going to have you on my podcast and not ask, <laughs> and not ask you to play Jumping Jack Flash. Yeah, oh God, don't do that. Well, I, wouldn't mind. I, wish I, I wish I'd written it. That story is your Jumping Jack Flash. Um, yeah. At its best, what, what made BBH different from other agencies at its height? Um, I think at its height, one, the three of us were like, were, were a, a phenomenally, we worked phenomenally well together. Constantly respected what each did. You know, again, I go back to my reference of a band. We, you know, the lead singer wasn't trying to play drums. The drummer wasn't trying to tell the lead guitarist how to play. We completely respected what each of us did. And we had a kind of business ethic about being a good business, um, working on great pieces of business, uh, telling our clients the truth, what we believed in. Uh, and gaining respect for an industry that, you know, you touched on it there, Omid, who said, you know, it, it, it's an industry of kind of, you know, telling clients what they want to hear, not what they should hear. And so I think we got respect for that. But it was essentially the three of us being kind of uh, working brilliantly together. And that, therefore, reflected itself all the way through the agency. Because, you know, people watch what the leaders do and they then sort of follow what the leaders do. And because people realised that, you know, you couldn't play politics at BBH, we weren't particularly interested in that. The only thing we were interested in doing was doing great work. And we always used to say our mantra was let the work do the talking. Yeah. And so it wasn't an agency of politics in any way at all, even though I'm sure there must have been some. But it was an agency of focusing on the work if the work was great that's all we cared about you know we used to say all work all roads lead to the work and because we worked in a in a very cohesive way together other people replicated that uh, we replicated that through the agency well that's my question if the magic sort of starts with the chemistry between the founders did you find it difficult to export that magic as you open a new york office and open offices around the world well it's always very difficult i mean i think that Advertising agencies are always very personal businesses. It's about the chemistry of, of the founders, the chemistry of the people at the top of the company, 
replicating that around the world is very, very, very hard, which is why in a way we've only, you know, I'm no longer there now, of course, but it, it, you know, when I was there, we only had about eight, at the most we had eight offices. You know, and I look with sort of some humor and I, I look at, you know, you know, a sort of certain digital companies and going, well, we're going to have 23 offices around the world. And, and I say, of course you are, because you're a technology company. You're not about emotion. You're about a bit of technology. And when you're creating the kind of work that we create, when you're doing the things that we do, they're very powerful. They're very emotional. And, you know, getting the right people together, replicating your culture, because culture is crucially important to an agency and ensuring that people adhere to that is fundamental to its success and very very difficult to replicate and um, you know we've had distinct failures i mean we don't mind to say that you know but you know we don't care <clears throat> yeah. you'll go on doing it you've often talked about how a great ad meets this criteria of a triangle whose points are memorable motivating and truthful yeah. For all the ways that the world has changed, has your criteria for a great ad changed? Not at all, actually. If anything, I think it's become even more the case. And I now do a, you know, focus much more on you know, truthfulness. And I, and I think we're living in a world today where somehow we view truth as a tradable commodity. Um, and there's, uh, uh, I, I would ask everybody to go and look at, a piece by a wonderful New York art critic called Boris Groys. And Groys talks about art and truth and how without truth, art is nothing. It is just decoration. And I think truth is at the core of everything. And I think we're living in a world today where we don't value that or we, we've lost our belief in that. And I'm not, you know, we can see it all around us. I I'm not going to go into who we're talking about here, but, but everywhere we, we see companies lying. We see politicians lying. We see advertising that isn't truthful. And yet we know the greatest advertising, the greatest work that ever existed that was most successful was founded on a truth. And that's the lesson I've learned. And it become more relevant today not less relevant as we live in a you know post-truth world a world of fake news it's crucially important to everything we do and I, and I think um, I would say to everybody you know if you want to make your work better make it more truthful and and that's kind of you know because it's disarming it, it's attractive it's it's kind of it's faithful to something and I and I you know, I'm going to say something here about, you know, I, I, and this may sound mad, but I'm going to say, you know, I own a vineyard in France for all kind of daft reasons. Don't, don't, I won't even go into that. But we farm not only organically, but we are biodynamic. And biodynamic means you're working in harmony with nature. You're not trying to, you know, organic just means you don't use chemicals. But biodynamic is a higher level of that. You've got to be organic. But it means you're working in harmony with nature, accepting nature as your partner. You're accepting the truth of nature, what nature can do. You're not fighting it. You're not disregarding it. So even in farming, you learn the truth is fundamental to success. And I think as we 
suffer this terrible kind of pandemic. Why do we? Why are we suffering this? How did it come about? We all kind of vaguely know where it came from and what we were doing and how we've abused nature. And you can't go on abusing it. It will kick you back. And so even at that level, truth is fundamental. You know, and somebody said to me about the vineyard, they said, John, what, what kind of wine are you trying to make? And I said to them, you know, you're asking me the wrong question here. What you should be saying is, what wine does my earth want to make? What wine does my land want to make? I'll work with that. I'll work in partnership with that to help it make the best possible wine I can make with that land. And I think that's what we've got to do. Got to accept that sense of truth and how important it is in everything that we do. And I think we're suffering today because to a certain extent we've lost that. Truth has to start within the walls of the agency. As BBH and as you grew in stature through the years, did you find it difficult to create an environment where those around you could feel comfortable speaking truth to power within the walls of your own agency and not just sort of nodding yes uh, to every word that came out of your mouth? <laughs> You're right. That, that is one of the great hard things is that, that you know, you, you, you know I, I constantly used to say to people, you know, you know, you get, as you become more successful, your success will destroy you please remember to question everything. That's how I got to be, I think, as good as I was. But you can't stop people going, oh, John said this, so therefore it must be right. And in a sense, it, it, it always worried me that. I always tried to seek people out who would tell me the truth. Because what happens is, you know, there's a great line in Shakespeare about it is, it is the courtiers who kill the king because they kill the king because they agree with everything the king says. And I don't want to be surrounded by people who agree with everything I said. But I was very lucky. I always had Nigel and John who tell me that was shit and I should think about something else. And because we respected each other, we would take that. But it is the problem that how successful kind of destroy you. And you can see it in people. You can see how all of a sudden, you know, what they say becomes ever more important. But it's a hard one, that. You try and balance it out with humility and give people the chance to speak and you don't speak first, you let somebody else go first. But I found even in meetings there, you know, even that was hard because, you know, you'd be in a meeting and some people present work and there'd be that moment when the team presented the work and there'd be that silence, who's going to speak first? And I thought it was very difficult in that situation to say to somebody else, Tell me what you think, because you were putting them on the spot. So I would always go first and say, look, guys, this is what I think. And I'd give my reasons for it. But please, now tell me what you think. And let's try and have a conversation around it. But also, you have to kind of then, it's a path you, you tread. It's, it's a very careful path where, you know, uh, collaboration becomes the death of creativity. And, and to a certain extent, you've got to be quite tough, you know, because you're, you're trying to break borders down. You're trying to do things which are very different. And there are lots of voices around you going, oh, I'm not sure, John. Oh, that's very different. You know, oh, I don't know about that. You know, I remember when we came out with our little character called Flat Eric for Levi's back in the, the, the end of 99 into 2000. And I had people all around me going, Johnny, 
you sure this is right? You know, this is a fluffy puppet Levi's. We're a cool brand. Is this cool? And I, I knew it was going to be, I, inside I kind of knew it was going to be, I'm not absolute, but I had to really fight it through. And, and so you're, you're, you're balancing those things all the time. Yes, I want people to tell me what they think, but on the other hand, I've got to be careful. If I listen to too many of those voices, doubt begins to seep into the system and that then becomes the destruction of great work. So it's a tough one. It's hard. It's hard not to fall under the disillusion that the job of the creative director is to achieve maximum consensus. You know, you're, if you're good, part of being good is being decisive. Mm. And if you're doing something that's never been done before, then it should make people uncomfortable. Everyone knows the right things to say. Everyone knows to say disruption and never been done before. It's only when we're actually confronted with what that looks like in the form of an idea that you find out who's really on your side. I always used to say when you got that from clients, you know, they'd say, I want something very different. And I, I always just say to the creative teams, you've got to go to the briefing. Because when the client says that, just watch. Do they lean forward as they say that? Or do they lean back as they say that? If they lean back, you know they don't really want it. They're just mouthing. If they lean forward, there's a good chance they do want that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's, and everybody's a genius after the event. You know, it's kind of. I'm going to watch for that. I've, all, I've sometimes said one of our jobs is to sometimes make our clients famous against their will. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> not always. Against their best. So throughout the 80s and 90s, John, you're reshaping the global industry alongside peers like Dan Wyden, Lee Clow, Cliff Freeman. Yeah, sure. I'll say in the modern era, maybe you've seen this, you know, many of the best CCOs are quite friendly and supportive of each other. And, you know, social media and award circuits play a big part in this. I wonder if the same was true for you back then. Were you friendly and supportive with your biggest business rivals who you were often competing for business against? Well, actually, we were. I mean, I always felt that one of the great things, certainly in the UK, we had a group of, of kind of creative agencies, names of which a lot of people won't know, people like David Abbott and John Webster and people like... And we all liked each other. We were all highly kind of competitive, but we felt we were part of a club trying to change the industry and the big dull, boring agencies were the ones we really didn't get on with who kind of, you know, were trying to sort of bring it down. So I always sensed there was a, a, an element of sort of consensus amongst those people. Yes, we were ridiculously competitive. Of course we were. You know, I, I used to drive me crazy when I'd see White and Garden pick up another award and I'd get really pissed off but that was important that I got pissed off but I sat back and I thought but they deserve it you know and, and I'd look at our work if that year wasn't I said we didn't deserve it so come on what are we doing and so we used each other I think I well I certainly did I used them as a sort of a kind of uh, a, a, a competitive coach to kind of push my work forward but you know, I loved so much of what they did. I, we were doing different things and they weren't quite the same as them. And, you know, it's again, it's like, you know, there's that great rivalry we heard between, you know, the Beatles and the Beach Boys. And, and, and they kind of pushed each other at the time. And Pet Sounds became a response to Sgt. Pepper. 
it was a very different album. It wasn't like Sgt. Pepper. But they, they heard that and went, Christ, we've got to do something better. And I love that sense of competitiveness within our industry. But at the end of the day, you know, when we were having a drink at the bar, we'd all have a laugh and get together. But it was those agencies that were the dull and boring ones that we couldn't bear to be around. Right. They drag you down, you know, they're just depressing. Only surround yourself with great things. It might just rub off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, it makes perfect sense. The people you mentioned are probably the people who understand the pace and pressure of your life better than anyone else. So yeah. it's only natural that over a drink in a bar, you guys are going to easily be able to connect. Very much so. Um, you mentioned awards. You know, I think all creative directors have mixed emotions about how much they value awards and award shows. I, I wonder for you, how much validation did you get from winning agency awards over the years? And has your perspective on awards changed at all looking back? Well, we were, you know, we were, we were very supportive of awards. DNAD was a fantastic organization that was set up by and for creative people. The profit it made went back into the industry to support it and to education. And the same in the States. You had, you know, I think uh, the One Club were doing that. And, and lots of your, your award shows were doing that in the same way. And they were tremendous. They showcased great work. And I think, and again, what happened in the sort of the 80s is the, is the big groups began to realise, hey, these awards are very important and that we've got to win more to show that we're better. So all of a sudden, this, this whole thing of, you know, award scales and, and, you know, where are you in the, the award list and the league table and all that, became fundamentally important and the whole fake award schemes began to emerge as we know that people were kind of encouraged to create work that would win an awards rather than work that genuinely changed the way people felt or thought and so we've ended up with a system that's been corrupted uh, and it's a bit like drugs in sport you know it's the, exactly the same thing you know you, you've got to win got to get that, a country's got to win, we've got to get more medals at the Olympics than another country, so we're going to give our athletes these drugs, and, and, it, and, it, and it corrupts the sport. And I think our industry now has been corrupted by awards, sadly, because I still think awards are very important. But the important thing I wanted to say is, the reason I say this is because when we did great work, and I talked about Colin Dickinson Pierce as being a great agency because they took creativity to the masses. They did great creative work on big, big brands. Brands that, you know, I always, this won't mean much to you, but my auntie in Harpenden, it's a place north of London, would see, you know, and, and, and she'd say to me, John, did you, did you do that Hovis ad? I saw that Hovis ad. Yeah, that's really, really good. And that changed the way the business felt because people saw that great creativity worked. Now you have a situation where you become an award-winning art director because, I don't know, you painted something yellow and you got 15 people to run around it in amazement or something like that. And we think, you know, you get a, a Grand Prix for doing that. And it makes no difference. And I think we came into this business to actually make a difference, to actually change things. And that was very exciting to be a part of that. Now, award schemes are just about manipulating 
the amount of awards you've got and getting your agency up the league table. And I think, as I say, my analogy is it's like drugs in, in, in sport. It's just a corrupted system now, which I have very little kind of belief in and value. In 2012, BBH was sold to Publicis. Indeed. I always wonder when someone like you sells his agency that he has personally invested so much of his heart and soul and really identity into, I mean, surely there's a sense of triumph, but is there also any bittersweetness that comes with it? Well, of course there is. You're, you're, you're selling something that you created. You're selling a culture that you were very much a part of making. Um, but ultimately, you know, Nigel and myself, John had retired in 99, the end of 99. Nigel and myself had to kind of hand the agency on. We had to kind of make sure that it continued. And we realized that because of our ownership structure, the way it worked is that when you left the agency, if you had shares in the agency, those shares had to be sold within the agency. They couldn't be, there wasn't a public market. And that we were told by everybody, if, if Nigel and I did this, sold our shares to the next level of management, then they would take the agency public because they would make 10 times what we made. And that's what happened to Leah Burnett. Um, people forget that. That, that. This system was set up by Leah Burnett where you had to, Leo, where you had to sell your shares within Leah Burnett. When that expired, the management team at the time sold the agency public and made a fortune. And so we were told that if we don't, if we don't sort of realize that, then that is what will happen and that will destroy the agency. So we looked to a partner where we could negotiate a future for the agency, realize the asset that we created and for those other shareholders, but there were a lot of other shareholders. We weren't the only ones by far. There were something like 20 shareholders to try and one, take some asset out, but two, to guarantee its future. And we negotiated this deal with Publicis about autonomy within the group, that if we maintained a certain degree of profit, agreed each year, maintained our creativity, we wouldn't be changed. And that we, we negotiated with them, and then Nigel and I exited. But yes, there is, I mean, there is definitely a bittersweet sense of, I'm leaving something I love, but you know, it's like your children, you have to let go. Right. You just have to let go and you can't hold on in there and you can't wander around as some ghostly figure that is kind of muttering something in the background, go off and do something else, you know? <laughs> and I think that happens, you know, you've got to do it. Well, with that, I'll ask you, you know, one of the most important skills of a great creative director is to know which ideas will pierce culture and part of that is being an arbiter of what will be cool and and what is current i know it's true for me and some of my peers that you know as we age we start to feel a little insecure about our ability to stay current with the same ease that we did in our 20s and 30s you've always exuded such a sense of cool i wonder did you ever grapple with such feelings around staying current i do you know i i to be honest with you i didn't but i right you do, you do sometimes think, you know, right, right now I said to one of my partners at the garage, look, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I've just turned 76. And I said, 
you know, we've got these young kind of entrepreneurs coming in and we're giving them brand advice. And I said, I said to Nick, he was a great planner at BBH. He's now with me. We, we worked together for 25 years at BBH. And I said, Nick, you've got to tell me if, if I'm in there and, and somebody's looking at me and going, Who the, what the fuck is this guy doing? <laughs> Please, you've got to tell me. And he said, John, I can assure you I would. But, you know, I, I tell you what I, I think. You know, I, I always say this, really. You know, I think the world's greatest architect was Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright died at the age of 90. He died six months before the greatest building I think he ever designed opened, and that was the Guggenheim in New York. So at 90, he was creating one of the finest buildings that he'd ever created. And as I say, sadly, never lived to see it open. And I always think, you know, if he can be doing it at 90, then I'm sure we can. You know, the thing that... And why can't, why can't you be at the peak of your powers too? Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, that's what you've got to say to yourself. Just get better. Keep being daring. Keep pushing yourself. Don't, don't look back at failure. Failure, yeah, fine, that didn't work. You know, so what? You know, people say to me, oh, do you learn from your mistakes? And I go, absolutely not. Don't even dwell on them. Because you're trying to break new ground all the time. You're trying to do something very, very different. You know, in Picasso painted Dora Mar. Did he think when he put the eye up there and the nose round here, and that, did he think, oh, God, what will people think of this? No, he wanted to create a different way of painting a portrait. And he did. And therefore, he broke new ground. He could have been ridiculed. He could have been laughed at, but he didn't. As long as you go on doing that, I think you can be current. And as long as you go and don't take yourself overly seriously, but just stay aware, you know, look at stuff, read stuff. Don't follow what everybody else does. Don't be, you know, be broad in your views, be open to things. And then I think you can go on being great. Okay. So with that, we're going to try something different. We're going to break a little new ground on this podcast. Yeah, go on. I've arranged a little game. Okay. So you have obviously had a lasting impact on many creatives who have gone on to become <clears throat> CCOs and directors and start their own companies and do great things thanks to your tutelage. And they all have something in common. They all have their favorite John Haggerty quote, <laughs> some memorable gem that only you could have said that has stuck with them throughout their lives. So I've enlisted some of their help uh, to create a little game I have called Haggertyisms. <laughs> Here's how it works. I will read a quote. You will tell me true or false if you said it. Right. Each yeah, correct okay, answer earns you 100 advertising dollars, which is completely non-transferable to any legitimate. Yeah, yeah exactly. It means absolutely nothing. But hey, I could be very rich in advertising dollars. Go okay, on. are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Go for it. First quote. Quote, making a great ad is 80% idea, 80% execution. I definitely said that. That was courtesy of Ari Weiss. That is true. Yes. You earned a hundred advertising true. dollars. Yeah. The next quote is true or false. You said, quote, you're only as original as your sources are obscure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was courtesy of Peter Roche. Originality is dependent upon the obscurity of your sources. But that that's the actual quote. But actually, it was made before Google and that. So <laughs> Today, everything's out there. So yeah, that I definitely said that. You're two for two. Okay, number three. 
True or false, while interviewing a writer, you warned, quote, just remember that words are a barrier to communication. Yeah, I did. That's exactly what I said. I, I, I said that to annoy the writers because I wanted them to value the words, you know, rejection, reduction, reduction. Words are a barrier to communication. Yeah. That was courtesy of John Petrullis. Okay. True or false, walking past the untidy workspace of a young creative, you told him, quote, I find that I work better when your desk is clean. I'm not sure I said that, but I might have done. It's the sort of thing I might just, just to annoy them. So I can't say for sure that one. It doesn't, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure about that one. That one is true. And that one is courtesy of my brother, Amir Farhang. Oh, I see. Well, then it is true that I, it, it, yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably, yeah, I can see I would have said something like that. <laughs> I was just finishing college. He was at BBH and he called me in 2003 and he was kind of telling me about you. And he's like, yeah. for this guy, he's this iconic guy. And he goes, he walked by my desk and my desk was just covered in shit. And he looked and just said, I find I work better when your desk is clean. I was like, this guy sounds <laughs> fucking great. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Last one. You're yeah, four for four. Final one. Upon hearing your ECD lament, hey, you're only as good as your last ad. True or false, you handed him a brief off your desk and replied, actually, you're only as good as your next one. Yeah, I did definitely said that, yeah. And that one is courtesy of William Gellner. Yeah, definitely. That's exactly what I did say, yeah. You're only as good as your next ad, never mind the last one. <laughs> okay, so you've earned 500 advertising dollars. Do not spend them all in one place. I feel, I feel, I mean, I'm a very rich man. This is wonderful. <laughs> it was great to reach out to some of these people um, who I've known for a long time, and they all have such affection for you. And in doing so, actually, you know, switching gears here, John Petrullis, uh, a former CCO at BBS, yeah. told me such a great story. You know, he said, after a few months of being at the agency and kind of, you know, figuring out what role he wanted to play and what needed to be done, he put together this long presentation for you about how he respected BBH so deeply, but you know he felt big changes needed to be made and he, he created this presentation to take you through all the things that he wanted to do. And you sort of stopped him in his tracks before he got past his cover slide and just said, just do your thing, do your thing, make the work better and everything will be fine. And he said, you doing this for him was just the ultimate gift because it, unsaddle, it unsaddled him from trying to sort of be a shitty version of you versus the best yeah, version of himself. Exactly. How conscious were you of the need to relieve that pressure and liberate those next waves of creative leaders who came after you to, to be able to be themselves? Well, I always, you know, the one, the one thing I, you know, we don't really get taught how to be a leader. But again, I go back to, I was very aware of what it was like when I wasn't a leader, when I was working to a creative director and how they were to work with. And the ones that really impressed me, the ones that really helped me, the ones that let me be me, yeah, they expected a certain standard, they, but, and therefore they gave me responsibility. And that, for me, was a fantastic way of creating. And, and I think you then take that with you when you're, you know, you're going into now being a leader yourself and you remember what it was like being led. And so many leaders don't do that. They kind of forget it and they think, now I know how to be a leader. I'm going to be an asshole or I'm going to be that. I'm going to kick everybody. I'm going to shout at everybody. I've got power. And the power goes to your head. And I think 
that was the thing that I realized it didn't. I always used to say to all the creative people, look, you know, most companies are a triangle. I love triangles. You can probably gather that now. And, the, most, and as you go up the triangle, you get more and more power. So you kind of end up with kind of, you know, Steve Jobs or whoever it is or Jeff Bezos at Amazon. And he's got all the power. An advertising agency is an inverted triangle. It's not like that. In fact, you, the creative people, are along that line at the top. Now it's inverted. I'm at the bottom. And my job is to recognize your ideas. You have the power, not me. Because you're having the idea. My job is to recognize that, encourage it, nurture it, and help sell it. Because if I do that, you've made me famous as well. And I sense that always. And I learned that from Charlie Sarchi. Charlie never minded who had the idea. If it was a better idea than his, he'd go for it because in the end he knew it would reflect on him anyway. Right. So it, it paid. You know? There was a pragmatism that, to it. Yeah, pragma, totally pragma, pragmatic. You know? And I always sensed that. And I always had that feeling of this is what you should do. So you liberate the creative voice, so to speak. You liberate the creative person, getting them to understand where we've come from that we work in this kind of way and we have those principles. And once you've accepted the print, you go and do it. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I can't sit in every office and start dictating what ideas people should or shouldn't have. Let them free. You know, this is great. I end every episode with the same three questions. Before I do, I would like to just ask you one very random question. Go on. Okay. In 2008, you were inducted into the Art Directors Hall of Fame the same night as my first employer, Alex Bogusky. Yeah. And it was a strange setup. You two shared a stage with no moderator. You almost were asked to interview each other. There wasn't much of a relationship there prior to you taking the stage together. And some say that the banter that night was playful, and others say that the banter got a little testy. And there's no video footage to corroborate really what happened that night which has sort of added to the folklore of it. I know you attended a lot of shows and they probably all bleed into each other, but what, if any, memory do you have of that night? I, I distinctly remember it. I, I didn't like it. I thought Alex was arrogant. <clears throat> I thought he was partly shitting on our industry, um, which, I, which he then did when he left. He, he shat all over it. Um, uh, I didn't really like him. Um, and maybe I, it was hard for me to hide that. Um, and it's rare I, because I, I did respect a lot of, I liked a lot of what he did. I liked the work, but I've always also kind of go, why shouldn't I like the person as well? You know, we always had a thing at BBH. We, yeah, and it's not a word. I, we always used to have, we want tons of people, but we want nice people. And, and why should I hire talented people who are shits? I don't, I don't want to be around them. I, I didn't like him, no. Uh, and I don't think he liked me, actually, to be honest with you. <laughs> so it was quite mutual. Who the hell organized he, this event? I can't remember what it was now. I do remember. It was the Art Directors Club Hall of Fame, and you two were inducted on the same night. The same and night. It's so it's strange they, that they would yeah. have such a, such a setup. I think there were questions from the audience and we just answered them and, um, and it worked like that. But I, I didn't, 
yeah, I, I, I distinctly remember it. And I, it was one of those evenings which I thought I'd rather have not have had, but I did. The exchange that stood the test of time was um, you said to him something to the effect of, hey, I really like the stunts that you guys do over there. And he replied to you, I really like those long copy ads that no one reads anymore. And the crowd oohed and odd. And just when you guys would sort of go over the line and tell each other to fuck off, you'd find a way to bring some some joy and some <laughs> humor back into it. Yeah, I think that. But we, we never, we did hardly any long copy ads. Mostly we did television. But he wasn't particularly good at television. He was good at stunts. Uh, and I think, you know, I think I was trying to say to him, you don't build great brands out of stunts. Right. Um, you build them out of, um, you know, philosophical thoughts, but you know, it was, yeah. Rather than, rather than comment on that, I will move into my final three questions that we end every interview with. The first is what is the word or phrase of marketing jargon you most despise? <clears throat> um, the customer's always right. Um, that's bullshit. The customer is often wrong. Um, and you've got to keep a healthy kind of disrespect for the, for the customer. Remember, you, you know, you're trying to do something which isn't like everybody else. If I listened to what the customer wanted, you know, I'd make something very bland. So that phrase for me always, you know, I think, oh, God, here we go again. The customer's always right. No, the customer isn't always right. Like the market isn't always right. You know, that great phrase that, you know, sort of right-wing kind of business people, that the market's always right. No, often the market's fucking wrong. <laughs> and in a big way, you know. So that's one I, I just like. Customers always right. No, they're not. The next question is, what is the most insulting or horrific response you ever elicited from a client during a creative presentation? <laughs> oh, God, well, that, that's quite... I, I want some... Um, I was just trying to think about that. Um, you know, it's a hard one, that, because I've never, I, I don't tend to um, focus on failure like that or insulting comments like that. Um, uh, you know, now, there was a sort of, and I'm trying to remember the story now, and it was, we were, um, no, I, I can't quite remember that one. I've, it's forgotten. I, I'm going to pass that one because I, I you know, I, I've, I've just walked out of meetings and stuff like that and said, we should end this. We did pitch once for, to the guy who invented the Swatch and it was for one of his watch brands and he was Swiss and notoriously rude. And um, uh, I wanted to, we were pitching and he, he just kept interrupting and I wanted to just say, end it and just say, look, we'll go now. Um, but I thought I can't do that because all these people have worked so hard on this presentation. It might just resonate. So I, but I, I don't, I don't know. I'm not very good on that question. Okay. And the final question, that's quite all right. The final question is, I call it the one that got away. It's what is your favorite idea that for whatever reason, it never got sold. It never got made, but you still think about it from time to time. It still lives in your heart. You still wonder. Yeah. It's really a shame that idea never got made. Yeah. Um, well, it was actually, it was a Levi's. We, 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 we used to write, when we were doing the, the 501 campaign, we used to write about 50 or 60 scripts to get down to about two or three that we thought were good. And then we were, and we, there was one that we had written and it was about a guy who'd gone onto a golf course in a pair of jeans. And of course he was 
seen by the players and he was chased off the course and it was like we did it with guys in caddies and it was like the chase getting them off the course and um, I always thought it was very funny actually we did it in a very funny way it was like a music video almost and uh, the, the line at the end of it is some, was something like blue doesn't always work with green um, something like that as I remember and I always loved it I thought it would be great and I realised that I was presenting this to a whole load of Levi's people who love playing golf <laughs> Did you explain to them? Did you explain to them that you were a former caddy? Yeah, I did. I did the whole thing. I got the whole thing. I got, I got to walk, walk, talk about it, and they went, "No, John, we don't. No, we don't mind that." And I thought it'd be a great one. It was again about you know how genes are against the establishment. Golf is the establishment. But I just thought that he's having a go at our sport. That it never got made. I love that one. It could have been really great. I was really curious how you would answer that question, and it's only appropriate that. It was an ad that actually was something that was close to your heart and, and, and your yeah. early life. So it makes perfect sense. Well, John, I'll, I'll end it here. I'll say that, you know, aside from all of the legendary work and achievements and awards, you've touched countless lives throughout your career and you've altered the trajectory of many for the better. Uh, and that includes my big brother, Amir. Well, so, send him my love, won't you? Send him my, I, I remember him well and, and with great fondness. I'm going to let you say it yourself because before we say goodbye i'm actually going to bring in my very special surprise guest to ah. share a parting thought former bbh copywriter now successful director please say hello to my brother amir farhang amir where are you john amir <laughs> how lovely to see you seeing you how i just you? feel like i need to have a dossier full of scripts to show you right now i know what the bloody hell are you doing what are you going to show me and by the way clean that desk up too exactly i, I, exactly. I vaguely remember that i wasn't sure but it, i do you know the thing it's the sort of thing i would say just to annoy somebody really because <laughs> <laughs> you know what? my desk has never been cleaner since oh lovely there are a lot of great lessons i took from you and i'll never forget one day you coming to me, I was not doing well when you, when uh, you, we, we had a different um, executive creative director and, and it was a very, it was a, the environment there did not favor a junior to come in to work on the Levi's briefs. And I wasn't getting many opportunities and you came in and I was getting all these opportunities. We were working directly together frequently. And one day you came into my office and you just said, I want you to understand something. I've seen what you can do and it's not lost on me. And, uh, uh, I'm I'm going to make sure you get more opportunities because you deserve them. And then you also said, I'm also appalled at how much you're getting paid and I'm going to fix that. And it was <laughs> one of the most amazing things like, you know, cause I would, I was always at work cause I wanted, I had a work ethic from um, instilled by where my upbringing and everything, but I also yeah. had nowhere else to be. I was broke and there was a lot of food at the office. So I was always there. <laughs> and this day was a day, I think it was a Friday. No one was in the office and it was just me and you. And we had this amazing exchange and I've, you know, I, I don't think oh. I become a director if I don't get to work for you. Um, oh, well, I mean, that's a lovely, uh, I'm, well, that's lovely. And I'm, I'm, well, I'm so great that you're doing well, you're enjoying it. And, you know, and we, you know, the, the wonderful thing is that I learned from some wonderful people. Hopefully you've done the same and you're going to hand that on to other people who will look to you and they'll go, Amir, you said this to me, you did that for me. It was absolutely brilliant. And thank you for doing that. And I think we've always got to remember that. And I, and I always thought, you know, the thing I always thought, you know, why be an asshole? You know, there's so many arseholes out there. They really are, especially in the creative world. I mean, they, 
they can be really, really awful. And you go, oh, why? You know, it doesn't have to be like that. And, and you, you know, you can inspire people in lots of different ways. But it's lovely to see you, lovely to see you doing well and absolutely wonderful to talk to your brother. How fantastic. So I just really wanted to express my gratitude to you. Oh, well, I think, really no. great, great to see you, man. And yeah, lovely to, to share see this you. opportunity with my brother here. Yeah, and I'll get out of his chair and get his get it. He's like staring at his microphone, like get away. For God's sake, it's my microphone. What are you yeah. doing? <laughs> All right, John, much love. Amir, lovely seeing you. Great Likewise. stuff. Great stuff. On on behalf of Amir, myself, and countless others, thank you for being the black sheep and showing us the way. And it was an honor to speak to you today. Thank you so much, John. Absolutely brilliant. Lovely talking to you. Great stuff. Stay safe. Stay strong. But most of all, stay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Thank you, sir. Okay. Thank you so much to the legendary John Haggerty. Thank you to my brother, Amir, for sharing some of his heart at the end of this episode. Thank you to Jeff Fiorello, the executive producer of this podcast, and JSM Music for all of their support. And thank you to all of you for listening. I have appreciated everything that you guys have done to support this show over the past couple years, and we're going to keep it going through quarantine. If you're liking the show, as always, please tell a friend or colleague, subscribe, rate, review. And until we talk again, peace.